0: The Book of Lamentations, remember this is written after 586, after Babylon has destroyed Jerusalem. The prophet Jeremiah wrote his great book, the Book of Jeremiah, dealing with his going to call the people of Judah to repentance. The Book of Lamentations is looking back and considering all this cursedness, and we've looked upon The first two chapters and you'll remember that the first chapter focused upon shame and mourning and the ways in which this destruction had occurred um, and the fact that it was just and the sins of Jerusalem were dealt with as a woman who has a loving husband who then is treacherous and so all of these various images are given to us in terms of the lonely widow, the dethroned queen, a maiden, a treacherous wife, betrayed by her adulterous lovers, right? the false gods and the other nations that are covenanted with. He's dealt with as one who is sexually abused, stripped naked, and who is viewed as richly unclean in menstruation. And so there is a lot there, a lot of kind of um, visceral imagery. We get to chapter 2, and Lamentations chapter 2 focuses on God as the one bringing these things. The sovereignty of God in bringing this suffering. Chapter 3 is sort of a miniature Job. And it focuses on the afflicted man. The man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. And so, remember verses 1 to 39 are from the perspective of the man. There's a little seven verse... Uh, section eight, verse section in verses 40 through 47, that focus on the kind of the communal perspective, and then it goes back to this perspective of the man in verses 48 to 66. And there's many allusions to Job, many references to Job, and so this idea of being tested, and so that was the emphasis, testing. Lamentations 4. Remember, Lamentations 3 got to the height of the complexity of the poetic elements. It had all three lines in each of the collections would each one of the three would use the acrostic where it was taking you know L F and you'd have line one, line two, line three, all of them starting with the first letter of the alphabet and then you do the same thing in the second one it would go down and so there was this this increasing complexity that we saw in the uh, poetry there. We get to four and it reduces from three to two per collection It continues to be an acrostic. And four um, is dealing with sort of this idea of the city besieged. And so the curse of a siege is emphasized. All of the monstrous elements that we are to consider here are associated with the siege. And one of the striking things that gets mentioned is that a siege is the worst sort of judgment to befall a city. That Sodom and Gomorrah's judgment was lighter by far than the judgment that befell Jerusalem. And we will consider that. The details of the imagery are difficult to even read or hear. And to think upon them is painful to the soul. And God has done that for us on purpose to give us to have to deal with this. This is something that you wish to look away from. And God has said, do not look away, stare into it, you must deal with this. Because we have to understand the curses that befall wickedness and that befall covenanted institutions that will not corporately repent. We as Americans are so inclined to think of live and let live, and those are the types of things that bring curse on the whole of a civil sphere. We are to live to the honor of God. And the magistrate's job is to cut off the most wicked in our midst to prevent wickedness from extending without measure. To praise what is good. To see that the church can operate. To see that it is endowed and maintained and settled. The church is to see that households are in good order, that right doctrine, worship, and government flourish in the land. And that the houses are the ministries of education, welfare, and health care and individuals do the work of dominion according to their station. The city besieged is the city that has ignored the right order that God has given. Lamentations 5 is the finale. It is the most chaotic. The loss and lapse of the acrostic, but there are still 22 literary units. And so what we see is the inhabitants of the city, men, women, and children, experiencing physical suffering from their enemies. There is oppression. And there is a being ruled over by the wicked, by foreigners, and by those of low condition. And so, dishonor in every imaginable form. So as we consider these things, these things are curses. So often, Christians approach life with a sort of cavalier super spirituality as though externals did not matter externals matter they matter greatly they provide for us a structure that allows us to deal with things but you can abuse them and you can make them your God I commend to you the right use of external blessings and let me let us consider that there are many blessings that we have that the Lord can take away It is our duty to struggle mightily to see that what is good is preserved and advanced and that wickedness be suppressed in the land. So, Lamentations 1. One last thing. This is the precursor to the rebuilding. This is the darkness. As we leave Lamentations, we will go into Ezra. And Ezra begins the rebuilding. We've looked at the history with Going from King Josiah all the way to the destruction by Babylon of Jerusalem. We read about that. And we have looked at Lamentations now. This horrifying end to the beautiful city of God. And when we get to Ezra, this is the darkness. This is the context of awfulness that the rebuilding exists in. Lamentations 4.1 how the gold has become dim. How changed the fine gold. The stones of the sanctuary are scattered at the head of every street. Okay, so the temple had been destroyed, right? We have, remember, there are two major physical temples being built in history. We have the first temple that was built by Solomon, and this is the one that's been destroyed in 586 B.C. The next one that gets rebuilt through the decree of Cyrus in 537 BC, is destroyed in 70 AD. It is the culmination of the Herodian temple, what's prophesied at the end of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48 give a description of a massive temple complex with precise measurements in cubits, which each cubit's about a foot and a half. And that is built and the rebuilding, but it starts out as this small thing that everybody cries about. The Solomonic temple had been destroyed. It had gold all over the inside of it. The Holy of Holies was covered in gold. And this temple has been destroyed and it's been torn apart. It has the stones of the sanctuary have been scattered. They've been poured out in the street like a common thing. They're at the head of every street. This is a general destruction, an intentional destruction. The Babylonians didn't like put cases of dynamite in there and blow it up and laugh when everything's scattered everywhere. There's a tearing down... And a pulling of the rubble of it away. This is an intentional profanation of the stones of the temple. The level of hatred and disgust. And a part of the reason they would have known to do these things is because of the cooperation of the Edomites, who knew the Israelites so well. They were nearby, and that we here betrayed them, though they were covenanted with Israel. And though Israel had been told to care for them, and though there had been a history of covenant, the Edomites encouraged the destruction and participate in the destruction. So the stones of the sanctuary are scattered at the head of every street. The precious sons of Zion, the children of the people of God, as valuable as fine gold. How they are regarded as clay pots, the work of the hands of the potter. Now, this is a point to the fact that God treats, you know, we are all pots to God, right? We are clay pots that are designed for an end, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable use. But the idea is that they are viewed as not valuable, and they're being broken and shattered. And this is at the will of God, but it's being done by, it's being done by the Babylonians. And so these two things, the scattering of the stones of the sanctuary... And the precious sons of Zion being treated like a common thing. These are laid side by side. And this is intentional because there's prophecy about this. We are reminded, for example, in Zechariah, we will see the image of the temple with living stones, which Peter pulls on, which Paul pulls on. This is the idea that the temple was always a symbol for the reality of the indwelling of God with his people. And so the temple being destroyed is a symbol that makes manifest the fact that God is willing to destroy his own temple in order to cause his name to be glorified, in order to bring discipline, and in order to cause a preventing of the profanation of his own name. When the people take his name and profane it, he will say, I will not allow my symbols to be profaned forever. And so he brings judgment. The destruction of the temple and the destruction of the sons of Zion is a way of saying the same thing. Both of those are the destruction of his temple. He is taking the sons of Zion, who are a precious thing, and allowing them to be destroyed. And he's allowing the physical temple to be destroyed. We find threats of this in the book of Revelation, that, that lampstand would be taken away, that curses would befall the land if the people are not careful to seek to maintain a first love. It right, begins by degrees, the skirting away from God. The maintenance of the first love, the praying in secret, the taking in of the Word of God in your spare moments, the caring to make sure you have private worship, seeking to have holy affections and to make righteous choices in the things that you think you could get away with. As you fail to do these things, you find that you more and more hypocritically deal with the externals in family worship and leadership. Your marriage becomes hardened. You do not rear up your children focused on the fear of the Lord. Servants become less about their immortal souls being treated justly and more about people to be manipulated. The church's public teaching and worship and government become more and more a form that is a burden. And so, A care to see those things well-guarded is diminished. And the state, with its punishment of crimes, and the praising of good, and the prevention of the oppression of the weak, becomes a thing that is also viewed as a burden, and it is viewed as a pragmatic tool. As we care less about the joys of the knowledge of God, and right affections, and righteousness in our choices in secret, these other things become calcified, hardened, and dead. And so, that results in God bringing great destruction externally. This hardness of heart is a part of the curse, right? We have blessedness that's promised in the new covenant that God would turn the hearts of the children to the fathers and the fathers to the children. But here, under this great curse, the hearts of mothers grow hard even against their nursing children. Right? Even the jackals present their breasts. Verse three to nurse their young, but this idea of a siege where there's little food, starvation, and there's sin. There is a hardening of hearts so that mothers are willing to even sacrifice their children. The daughter of my people is cruel, like ostriches in the wilderness. There's a breaking of eggs, a not carefulness around the eggs, the Ostriches move around, they're big, they're tall, their eggs are low, and so this idea of the trampling of the youth is what's being emphasized. This gets illustrated further in verse 4. The, young, the tongue of the infant clings to the roof of its mouth for thirst. Right? The, the mother has allowed the child to not be nursed, and either because she is out of every resource or because she is trying to save her own life at the expense of the child's life and this is referenced as cruelty. So you have this idea of the child being allowed to to starve and to thirst. The clinging of the tongue to the mouth of the infant. The young children ask for bread but no one breaks it for them. The cruelty of that. If you have any bread at all and you have it for yourself as opposed to giving it to the young one the idea of those who are in authority, keeping food away from starving children. These are the types of things that occur during sieges. And so, you, know, you can think about people talking about the horrors of bombing campaigns, but bombing campaigns are more like Sodom and Gomorrah than a siege. Sieges, this prolonged death, this horrifying process, is something that is a curse that is worse. The horrors and the pains of soul and the kinds of wickedness and betrayals of loyalty that occur in sieges are the things that are destructive of humanity in far more ways than the mere incineration of the body. Verse 5. Those who ate delicacies are desolate in the streets. Those who were brought up in scarlet embrace ash heaps. Right. So delicacies and fine clothing, desolation, ash heaps. Right. This There's a... A, a, a falling low fast, the destruction of wealth. And that occurs because those who have resources but are not industrious, in a siege they are quickly taken advantage of. Their wealth is expended to get themselves basic things that they need. And the absence of any sort of skill makes it so that as soon as those resources are consumed and they don't have others providing for them, they are Simply desolate and so they are likely to die being not useful so the cursed rich verse six the punishment of the iniquity of the daughter of my people is greater than the punishment of the sin of sodom which was overthrown in a moment with no hand to help her so here the idea with no hand to help her that line what's what's that everything else makes sense right away right you go the punishment of the iniquity of the daughter of my people is greater than the punishment of the sin of Sodom. Makes sense. It's prolonged. which was overthrown in a moment. Okay, Sodom's got this suffering or death that's very, very short. Makes sense. With no hand to help her. The idea here is that these people must suffer and they must suffer after time and time again, the people that are sworn to care for them betray them. So that one covenant after another is broken. That those who could help them simply see them like the children are seen by their parents and do not help them. The, The hardness and the cruelty of being in a position to help one who is under your authority, under your care, and simply allowing them to die, allowing them to suffer, betraying them, Verse 7 is translated as Nazarites, but I think it is Nazarite, the, the Hebrew word that can be translated Nazarite can also be simply translated as devoted ones. And so it's sometimes translated as nobles or those in authority, those who are devoted to some sort of public office. Those would be the ones who are the ones that um, you know, don't give a hand to hell, right? So the devoted ones, the men who are ordained, the men who are, who are set aside, that, that are given a position of public authority, they were brighter than snow. They were, they were more white than snow. They were whiter than milk. They were glorious. They avoided the sun. They were so powerful, so rich, so you know, raised up above the people. They were ruddy in body, more than rubies. And they were good health, like sapphire in their appearance. They're, they're covered in oil. They've got lots of oils. They cover their skin in oil. They're very well-to-do, their clothing is excellent, they're, they're just, they're glimmering. <coughs> now, their appearance is blacker than soot. They go unrecognized in the streets, their skin clings to their bones, they're, they're thin, right? they don't have muscle, they don't have fat. It's become as dry as wood. And so they are parched and thin, and their honor is gone, and they are gross. You don't even pay attention to them. Verse 9. Those slain by the sword are better off than those who die of hunger. Again, this idea that things that are cursed are being consumed by fire by God. Better than this. Being killed by bandits outside. Better than this. Right? This is the kind of fate. This is the way that this is talked about. For these pine away stricken for lack of the fruits of the field. The hands of the compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became food for them in the destruction of the daughter of my people. And so this betrayal, the not only not helping, but the even the consuming of the child, right? The, 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 the one who has a duty to care. The compassionate women, the women that are the ones that you know cry easily, the ones that are that are nice, the ones that are soft and tender. These are the women that are doing this. The Lord has fulfilled his fury, he has poured out his fierce anger, he kindled a fire in Zion, and it has devoured its foundations. Right? The the things that give foundation, that give structure, all of the order of civil order, ecclesiastical order, households, the great houses all of the relations of households, these things have been devoured by the fierce wrath of God. The kings of the earth and all inhabitants of the world would not have believed that the adversary and the enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. Right, Jerusalem had been this protected, cared for city. That God had in the past, when Sennacherib had 180,000 crack troops from the Assyrian hordes, come to surround Jerusalem, God laid waste to them in a night. This is the jewel of the earth. This is a shining city that God had protected and prevented king after king from being able to dominate. This was a city that had dominated the whole region from the Nile to the Euphrates. That had extracted tribute from the kings of the earth. And now the kings of the earth and all the inhabitants of the world And see something that they wouldn't even believe. That the adversary and the enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. Because of the sins of her prophets. Remember we talked today about Jesus fighting hard against false teachers. False teachers bring great curse on a land. Blasphemies and heresies as they teach people and guide them as blind guides. Because of the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests. right? False worship. Who shed in her midst the blood of the just. Right? Killing true prophets. Trying to eliminate people who are not convenient. When Jesus preached in Jerusalem, he said, you know, when you kill me, there will be a judgment that befalls Jerusalem. And that judgment will be for the blood of all the righteous prophets. And the blood of Abel, the blood of Zechariah. 70 AD was that. This was a precursor to that. They wandered blind in the streets. They have defiled themselves with blood. So that no one would touch their garments. Right, the... This is an interesting sort of literary precursor to Christ calling these false priests and prophets blind guides. They're wandering blind in the streets. They're defiled with blood. Which blood? They're defiled with the blood of those they've murdered. And there is also this way in which others wanted to stay away from them because they were unclean. So their hypocrisy was known, the avoiding of it. In verse 15, they cried out to them, go away, unclean, go away, go away, do not touch us. Right, so this this staying away, there's this pronouncement by their wicked deeds of how they're like lepers, corrupted by sin. When they fled and wandered, those among the nations said, they shall no longer dwell here. The face of the Lord scattered them. He no longer regards them. The people do not respect the priests nor show favor to the elders. Right, The priests and the elders, the prophets and the priests, those who taught and ruled, those who led the worship, those who instructed the people, There is no respect for them, and there's no favor to them. When you have legitimate officers who do you good, it's your duty to show them favor. It's your duty to honor them. It's your duty to respect them, to regard them, to acknowledge them. Their presence is a significant thing. The same is true children for your parents and wives for your husbands, and there is a duty of honor that exists. And when there is a collapse like this and it's the fault of the leaders and the leaders were blind guides and hypocrites and would not turn the ship to avoid the rocks when they won't do the things that are minimally necessary to avoid horrific destruction. They lose their honor and they have to deal with the consequences of it. Verse 17. Still our eyes failed us watching vainly for our help. In our watching, we watched for a nation that could not save us. There was an alliance with other nations to save them against Babylon, efforts to align themselves with Egypt or Syria or Assyria to try to deal with these foreign lands and to covenant with them wickedly rather than maintaining covenant with their God and seeking to do what was right. They're looking to these false gods. Verse 18. They tracked our steps. They hunted our steps. So that we could not walk in our streets. Our end was near. Our days were over. For our end had come. Our pursuers were swifter than the eagles of the heavens. They pursued us on the mountains and lay in wait for us in the wilderness. And so... The Babylonian armies were swift. They quickly overtake the countryside and quickly set up a siege around the town. They hunt down those left in the country. There's a killing of them. Those, and the earlier part was it was better. Those guys had it better off than the people that survived and made it to the city. The ones that were cut off before they could arrive at the high walls and towers of Jerusalem had it better. These Babylonians, these wild men, they lay in wait for us in the wilderness. So if anybody goes out to forage and they try to find food, they pounce. The breadth of our nostrils, the anointed of the Lord, was caught in their pits. Of whom he said, under his shadow we shall live among the nations. This is a, you know, we're the anointed people, and God promises to keep us under his wing And to guard us even though we're surrounded by enemies. And now we are hunted. 21. Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom. You who dwell in the land of Uz. The cup shall also pass over to you. And you shall become drunk and make yourself naked. Don't worry, you can rejoice at our destruction, Edom. You breakers of covenant. The book of Obadiah is one chapter. The book of Obadiah occurs at about this exact time and it is Obadiah the prophet going to them and letting them know that they will be destroyed, that they will be made barren, that what they had done to Jerusalem will be done to them. The most famous city of Edom is the city of Petra. It's a glorious city carved into the side of a wall. You have these rock buildings carved out And there's something very noticeable about those buildings. There are no people in them. Because all the Edomites are dead. A century after their treachery against Israel, against Judea, against Jerusalem, the Lord fulfilled this imprecation in verse 21 here that's elaborated upon in the book of Obadiah. verse 22 the punishment of your iniquity is accomplished O daughter of Zion he will no longer send you into captivity he will punish your iniquity O daughter of Edom he will uncover your sins so that's a threat of judgment so we have that and having gone through all of that the the besieged city the horrors of siege that poem is a nightmarish poem. And it is designed to make us to remember the horrors that befall a civil sphere that will not honor the Lord. If we take his blessings and take up his name and throw him off and abandon him like a harlot, then we have nothing to expect but curses like that. Lamentations 5 is the shortest chapter in the book. Remember, O Lord, what has come upon us. Look and behold our reproach. Our inheritance has been turned over to aliens and our houses to foreigners. We have become orphans and waifs. Our mothers are like widows. So now there's this call on God. Look, all these curses, you brought these. You did this. You did this as judgment upon us. It has come. Remember us. We pay for the water we drink, right? You think about the cheapest hotel room you've ever been in in your life. Was there a per cup refilled charge with the water? Imagine you're in a place where you're the servant and you're the one that has to draw the water. There's no running water. You're the one that has to pull it out of the well. You're the one that has to go down to the river to get it and you also have to pay for the right to drink it. This is the kind of existence that we find in Judah. Our wood comes at a price. These people of Judah have to, after the siege, after they've been conquered, they have to cut down the wood. They are the carriers of water, the hewers of stone, the cutters of wood, and they have to get that stuff and they have to pay for its use. They have to cut the wood, and they have to pay for the right to do it. This is an absolute subjection. They pursue at our heels. Now, it says necks, literally, in the Hebrew. They at our necks. Their, the idea here is not that you're being chased. The idea here is that there's this strangling. It's, it's the strangling of oppression. That they, are, that they are strangling the life out of these people they're getting every last ounce of profit out of these people we labor and have no rest so that translation of heels makes you think of a chase and this is not a chase they pursued our necks in order to make us work with no rest that's the idea we live in a land there's no sabbath about a year ago the united states postal service started delivering on the lord's day There is no Sabbath in this land. There's no rest. The the state and the large woke corporations would have every day be a day where they can seek to extract labor and gain profit. The Lord's Day protects the oppressed. The Lord's Day takes the lowest servant and says, you are a man of leisure today. Today, you get to act like a prince and take the day to study and sit in your library and read and have conversations about the great things of the earth and the glories of God with your neighbor. You can sit and feast and you are an equal with those that you come to the Lord's table with. The Lord's day is a feast day that points to the equality and the priesthood of all believers. And to take away the rest is an oppression. We've given our hand to the Egyptians and the Assyrians to be satisfied with bread. The giving of the hand here is a giving of a hand in pledge. It's of, about this idea of, of covenanting. They made false covenants, covenants they shouldn't have made with Egypt and with the Assyrians. But there's also the idea of giving the hand in terms of service. That there's an enslavedness. They've been enslaved by the Babylonians. They've given the fruits of their labor to Assyria to rescue them. They've given the fruits of their labor to Egypt to rescue them. All of their wealth, all of their work, all of their energy has been squandered. Become everybody else's slave. And the history of Israel, the history, of, history under David and Solomon, was the history of subjecting all of those people under their feet. Of extracting wealth. And pulling it in so that there was gold like mountains, and silver was so common it was like nothing. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. The blessing of the Lord gives these great things, and the curse of the Lord can make it so that life is like this. You think America is above all of this? Great and powerful. World War II, we had most of the world's GDP. Many people say China has more purchasing power than the United States now. Find Christianity is going out. It is our duty rather than to seek to simply squander our efforts and dissipate or bury our heads in the ground, it is to make clear, distinct, christian community to have households that are distinctly christian businesses that are distinctly christian have churches that are clearly and plainly confessing the whole counsel of god and to seek to have civil magistrates that are christian not just conservative not just men that are tolerable not just socialists that will moderate the tax level not people that will just say let's only kill those who are unborn that are under 15 weeks christians We're willing to apply the law of God and to not run away from it. We seek to have those things. And there's an order of operation. All of it sounds so above us. We look at all this, we go, these curses, I mean, how are we going to escape these curses? Because there's none of that. Little by little, you gather and work. Little by little, you build houses that are distinct. And little by little, you build resources and raise children and see churches grow. Three years ago, there were like 10 of us in this room. Nothing looks grand when you start it. And we even celebrate this, right? We think about people starting stuff in garages and we go, look at what they were able to build. This is the utter destruction, this is the horrific subjection that we will then see Ezra and Nehemiah build out of. Verse 7, our fathers sinned and are no more, but we bear their iniquities. Can you not relate to that? forefathers, even at the founding of the country, failed to see an established Protestantism. First Amendment. Failed to see an established Protestantism. Our forefathers allowed chattel slavery. Our forefathers failed to take and maintain what had been attained to. The Presbyterian Church in the United States abandoned the original Westminster Confession and adopted a religious pluralism into its confession. To allow the state to not recognize true confession, true worship, and to see that established in the land. We can go to all the things we want to complain about through all of the more recent times. We can talk about the 50s and the 60s and the 70s. But those are all far downstream. The things that you do have effects across centuries. Our fathers have sinned and are no more, but we bear their iniquities. And as a result, we have dementia patients that rule over us and unelected bureaucrats, printers of money, liars, covenant breakers, people that protect people who murder babies and who throw people into jail, who sing songs to try to stop it. We are ruled over servants, servants of servants. We are ruled over by servants of Satan, You know it. We all know it. They are wicked and pathetic. Our fathers have sinned and are no more, but we bear their iniquities, and servants rule over us. There is none to deliver us from their hand. There's no human being other than the Lord Jesus Christ is going to come and save you. There's not going to be a cavalry charge. Donald Trump isn't going to fix it all. You're not going to have somebody come along and make it all better. We get our bread at the risk of our lives. Because of the sword in the wilderness. Our situation is far better than verse 9. I'm not sure how many of you had to risk your lives to get to your daily bread. I didn't have to deal with that this week. Our skin is hot as an oven. Because of the fever of famine. Right, That delirium that comes upon you as your body begins to consume itself. And treat its own body like it's a disease. They ravished the women in Zion, the maidens in the cities of Judah. Right, The failure to deal with things properly, the fact that in our own land we know that sexual crimes go unpunished, there's a failure to deal with criminals, there's a special treatment of, of liberal criminals and illegal alien criminals, and a specially hard treatment of conservatives who have some sort of a technical ability to be thrown into jail. Princes were hung up by their hands, and elders were not respected. Right, the the idea of being hung up by the hand. You know, you've probably seen some sort of a movie or something where somebody is grabbed, they're tied up, and then they're hoisted up by the hands. Right? it's a it's a very um, emasculating, disempowering way to be hung up and to have somebody hanging there by their hands. The idea of those who were in authority, who had power at their hand, are now hung up by their hands, and the elders. Who are the example of who should receive respect and aren't respected? There's a destruction of the civil order. Young men ground at the millstones. There's a working, and a working in such a way as doing the work of, of the lowest level, the hardest type of work. There's no point of advancement. It's the kind of work that you would expect an animal to do. Okay? At a millstone, you tie up an animal and make it walk around over and over again. To put the young men there is to treat them like beasts of burden. Their glory is their strength, but they're not beasts of burden boys staggering under loads of wood. As opposed to educating boys and helping to deal with them, they're loading them up, giving them hard work that they are not strong enough to do, making them work long. There's a type of oppression. Verse 14, the elders have ceased gathering at the gate and the young men from their music. All these images, some of these things we don't really relate to because we go, our culture actually just pays people to not work. Our culture is doing that. I'll tell you what, at a certain point, the, the music stops and the fascists come in. At a certain point everybody gets too exasperated with people getting paid to do nothing and all the dependents just become slaves. That is the order of operation, okay? You pay people to become politically dependent and then after you have taken the power that you need, you start to gradually take those people and make them do things that they don't want to do. So you can look at the history of any socialist country you want, you can look at the communist revolutions, you can look at the fascists, That slave labor looks like you have, your career is you're a farmer. Well, congratulations. Your career is you are going to lay the bricks. Congratulations. Your career is you're a soldier fighting on the war that we have determined would be useful for political exigency this month. The career choices go away and that's called enslavement. The elders have ceased gathering at the gate. Why? Because decentralized political power is gone, and conversation is nothing but sadness. There's nothing serious to discuss for the wise men. And in fact, the wise men gathering is a danger to them because they become a target. One of the things that communist revolutionaries do, for example, in countries that they're trying to take over is they seek to disconnect the youth from the culture of the past. And they try to have a youth culture that is distinctive and that is filled with all sorts of debauchery. And so you make them separate from the elders. And in some African countries, for example, there are horrific stories of the Soviets coming in and paying the young men to go kill the old men of villages. You know, this removal of the elders. The elders become a target. They have no governing power. They have no respect. They're not able to rule. Their debates are meaningless. And so we mock the talking of old men. It's mocking the talking of old men. It happens because the old men stop saying useful things. Okay, boomer. I think about it, the degree to which that is our perspective of old people. We think old people just don't get it. We think old people are too decrepit, too decayed and too set into their ways to fix any of the problems. And the result is that we do not respect the old. We view the old as being those who are in the way. There is a great danger there. There is a great danger there. And the ones who have to correct it is the old. they need to repent. And become a zealous part of the advance of the kingdom. As opposed to trying to preach in ways and talk in ways that are acceptable to the establishment class which must be overthrown. Instead they ought to say things about the wickedness of that establishment. And they must be willing to say things about what the law of God says. They must be willing to preach without compromise which will make many in the establishment and many in power to hate them. The elders cease to gather because their words are not respected. I pray, and I ask you to pray with me, that many old Christian men, many gray heads, would start to advocate for the law of God in the civil sphere, and that many Executives who are gray heads would start to seek to take companies and simply disobey wicked laws and simply disobey what the culture wants and that you would start to see large corporations and large entities having their billions of dollars pointed at honoring the Lord. The Lord can do this. It is not too great for him. But even if he won't, we should build Even if he doesn't, the little gatherings and the days of small beginnings are still things that can have great impact across generations. The young men cease from their music. The singing of songs is the activity of young men. Singing of songs comes from energy, a strong, Heart, a strong sense of yearning, a desire to see things, to express beauty, to use time. The desire to use the strength to be creative. And the singing of young men comes with a voice that is clean and crisp. It is not ragged. The youth in it makes it so that it can be strong and pure in a a way that's different from the voices of the old And the young are expected to be able to rejoice in hope of the future because they have good health, good bodies, good prospects, all these things to do. And so the singing is an indication of their hope in the future. But the young men stop singing because they are doing work under oppression. Maybe it's a 30% tax rate. Maybe it is an inflationary system that takes away their ability to do that. The failure of parents to hand over an inheritance and to defend what has been built. The elders cease gathering and the young men stop singing. So there's no longer public discourse of wisdom and there's no longer public beauty. All that's left is the grind of life. The joy of our heart has ceased. Our dance has turned into mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. Right? The acknowledgement that these are things that we deserve for our sins and the sins of our forefathers. Because of this, our heart is faint. Because of these things, our eyes grow dim. Right, We don't have strength to keep working. We don't have hope for the future. We don't see clearly into the future about what to do. Because Mount Zion, which is desolate, with foxes walking about on it. You, O Lord, remain forever, your throne from generation to generation. Why do you forget us forever and forsake us for so long a time? Turn us back to you, O Lord, and we will be returned. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and are very angry with us. The end of Lamentations. At Ezra, we see God has turned his people back to him. At Ezra, we see them begin to build. The desolation and the foxes are removed. A temple is put into place. In Nehemiah, there's a return to see the walls rebuilt even again, because in Esther, there's a great effort to tear it down. This prayer was answered. The acknowledgement that God is sovereign over our suffering. We cannot get God off the hook by saying he's not the one who causes it. We get him off the hook because there's no hook to hang him on. There is no standard above him. There is no judge to judge him. He is the good. And when he punishes us, there is nothing you can complain about. You can complain to him and ask him to remove it. But you cannot say that he is wicked. You cannot say that he is unjust. What he brings is never an injustice. We deserve hell. We deserve hell. And when you get that, when you really get that, when you really think, I deserve to go to hell, it changes the way you look at suffering. And if you understand that you deserve to go to hell, it will make it so that you see the glory of the mercy of God in Christ as precious and the opportunities to serve even with difficulty as things that are themselves honors. So we are called to rejoice in suffering, knowing that it is testing or it is deserved discipline. The discipline for those who believe is to raise them up and to renew them, to turn us back to the Lord. The Lord, if he chooses to turn a people back, they will be turned. It is not a hopeless thing to see reformation in America. It is not a hopeless thing to see national covenanting. It is not a hopeless thing to see a Christian church that is vibrant and Presbyterian and confessional and reformed and psalm singing. It is not a hopeless thing to see great patriarchy. It is not a hopeless thing to see the people of God turned back and to see evangelicalism become a useful, holy, body unless God has utterly rejected us and is very angry but our God is a God whose mercies are new every morning and his compassions change not and he does not throw off his people comments questions and objections